Thank you, John. My name is Randy, and uh, I'm happy to be joining you folks. Uh, Glenn and Lori are away, and uh, I appreciated his introduction last week. He related me to Gandalf in The Lord of the Rings. I thought, wow, I'm glad he didn't say Gollum. <laughs> My wife and I enjoyed being away for our 45th wedding anniversary, but we heard uh, great things about the baptism service and the time here, so uh, it's great to be with you again. Yesterday, I got to spend time with my grandchildren. Their parents went up to Wisconsin to do visit an apple orchard. So I spent quite a bit of the time listening to my five-year-old granddaughter. And uh, she was thinking about an event that's happening this afternoon with my uh, daughter-in-law's family and wondered if I was coming. And I said, no, I, I'm actually preaching at Redeemer Church. And that launched her into a long discussion. Uh, it wasn't a discussion, it was uh, her lecture to me uh, of things about the faith, God, uh, who Jesus is, what it means to believe, uh, the quality of communion uh, bread. It has no salt in it. Um, I found out about the grape juice and I learned that a very important fact about baptism, and that is that you're not ready for baptism until you're willing to be put under the water. And she had just recently uh, been able to do that, and now she was very excited that she was becoming, possibly uh, closer to becoming a baptism candidate. I tell you what, you, you don't learn things until you hear them from the mouth of a five-year-old. But as I listened to her, I have to be honest, I was thinking about the article that I read in World Magazine that was entitled, Fading Faith, The Decline of the Church in America. I read some statistics. Just in 2019 alone, 4,500 churches closed their doors. This is a Lifeway research. And you say, well, but what about churches planted? 3,000 planted. 4,500 closed. Then they quoted a Gallup poll that said, in the year 2000, 67% of the American population said they were churchgoers, aligned themselves with the church. In 2020, the number was 47%, a decline of 20% in 20 years. And I'm thinking, what is the future for my five-year-old granddaughter when it comes to the church and faith? It made me ask another question. Why is the church of today so weak and unhealthy? And what does it take for a church to be healthy? And it dawned on me that the Gospels bring us back to the beginning of the movement where Jesus Christ launched the church. That's why it's so great to come to the Gospel of John and come and see. We've already read the first 18 verses 
that Jesus is the living word. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. He is the light of the world. He is the source of light and life and joy. He is our only hope of lasting joy. The only one. Which tells us that a healthy church has a Christ-centered focus. It's easy to lose that focus, isn't it? That Christ is the head of the church, the Lord of creation, the only source of life and light and joy. Not only that, we looked at the witness of John. Really appreciated Glenn's message last week, how John was asked three times, you know, are you the Messiah? Uh, no, I'm not. Are you the prophet? No, I'm not. Are you Elijah? No, and it just, his answers became shorter and shorter. Well, what are you then? I'm a voice, he said, quoting from Isaiah 40. Calling out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And I, and I loved how Glenn repeated it, not me, but him. Which tells us another thing about a healthy church. It is not man-centered. It is not. It's Christ-centered. It's so easy. I've been a pastor for 40 years. I know what it's like to have a lot of skin in the game and try to maximize my influence to get what I want. I have a lot of time now that I'm semi-retired to think about my failures and regrets. John is a good model for church leaders, whether they be pastors or Christian leaders of any stripe. He, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, must increase. I must decrease. Good stuff to remind us of what a healthy church is in a day when 4,500 churches a year close their doors. Today, we're introduced to something else. I appreciated John reading that. Our passage today divides into two parts, and you saw it. We saw the words, next day, in verse 35, and again in verse 43, next day. With two brackets there. We see uh, two sets of people, uh, Andrew and Simon in one section, the first section, and the second section we see Philip and Nathaniel. And we see Jesus saying, come and see. And then again later, Philip repeats what Jesus says to Nathaniel, come and see. I'd like to propose this. In the first paragraph, we have Jesus saying to seekers, come and see. I immediately, somebody said, whoa, whoa, whoa. Uh, Romans 3 says, no one seeks for God. I'm just repeating what the text says. Jesus deliberately asks them, Who, what are you seeking? So Jesus invites seekers. Are you a seeker this morning? Uh, have you noticed there's something longing in your heart that you're looking for? That's why you're here. 
We're glad you're here. And in the second section, he's speaking to skeptics. Nathaniel is a skeptic. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? We almost laugh when we read it. And here's what we learn in this passage. I'd just say it this way. Come and see Jesus and bring others with you. This is so basic. This is the beginning of what we call discipleship. Come and see Jesus. And then seeing who he is, bring someone else with you. Be great if right now everybody that is walking in the mall could just flood in here and come and see Jesus with us. Father, I just pray as we look through this passage for a few minutes that you would open our eyes to who you are and reveling in your glory, move us to share this good news with others. In Jesus' name, amen. So number one, Jesus invites seekers to come and see, verses 35 to 42. John testifies, behold the Lamb. Now, it's the second time he said it. He said it last week in our last week's passage. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is a powerful statement that only God could have revealed to John the baptizer. Because the Jewish mindset was not that the Messiah would be a lamb who would be slaughtered. But somehow John's eyes were open to Genesis 22. Isaac walking up the mountain saying to dad, we're going to sacrifice, but where's the lamb? And then in Exodus chapter 12, when the lamb was slain to put the blood on the doorpost so that the angel of death could go over this, the uh, nation of Israel to bring the 10th plague upon the Egyptians. It's the Lamb of God of Isaiah 53.7 that was slain for the sin of people. John somehow saw this. You know, one of the greatest stories I heard of witnessing was a, a sermon that was not really a sermon. Uh, have you ever heard of the name C.H. Spurgeon? Oh, I love that guy. I've not met him yet, but he preached in the 18 later 1800s in England, and he had this massive building where he would preach. It was called the Metropolitan Tabernacle, and he was, it was early in the ministry there, and he was testing the acoustics because they didn't have a sound system like we have today. And in order to test the acoustics, he didn't say, testing, testing, one, two, three, like we often do. Spurgeon got up and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And the custodian, who was all the way across, heard him say it and was immediately converted to Jesus Christ. That's the power of the Lamb of God. John says this, seeing Jesus walk by and encourages, again, note the humility of John. These disciples walked away to follow Jesus, and he didn't say, hey, where are you going? He said, yeah, go. One of the disciples, it says, was Andrew. Andrew followed along. And uh, Jesus 
looked at these guys and he said, uh, what are you seeking? What are you seeking? Let me ask you again this morning, what are you seeking? You know, John uses things in a double sense all the way through his book. It's not just, you know, what are you seeking, but it's what's going on in your heart? What are you seeking spiritually? What's the longing that's there? And they said, well, where are you staying? And uh, the word staying is also an important word. It's the word that John 15 uses is abiding, abiding in Christ, a close friendship. You know, where are you staying? And Jesus said, come and see, come and see. He invited them into his life, and they spent several hours with him. And I wished I could have heard that conversation. You know, it's one thing to hear someone talk about something, and it's another thing to experience it personally. I have a friend who told me the most beautiful beach in the world was the Copacabana Beach in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. And I thought, eh, I've been to some beaches. I've been to a beach at Arnold's Park, Okoboji. That's nice. I've been to Los Angeles and walked the Manhattan Beach. Oh, that's a great place, as long as the smog's not there. Coca, okay. But I want to tell you, on July 3 this summer, I was in a taxi driving around Cabana Beach and then stood at a motel front looking out on that beach, and I had to agree, having personally experienced it, that that was it's got to be one of the wonders of the, of the modern world. The beauty of the Copacabana Beach in Rio de Janeiro. You can tell someone something, but until they experience it personally, they don't get it. These disciples heard, there's the lamb. But until they sat down with Jesus and experienced him personally, they didn't understand. Seeing is believing. Now, the question comes up, how do we see Jesus today? Because, as you know, Jesus has ascended into heaven. He's living, uh, but we can't see him. He's spirit. And those who worship God must worship in spirit and in truth. Now, Jesus has a physical body. This is one of the mysteries of the Trinity that someday we'll understand. But how do we see God when we can't see God? Here's three ways. First of all, the word of God itself is a witness. And this all the way through, you're seeing in John, references to the Old Testament, and then you come to the New Testament Gospels, and then to the New Testament letters, and you see Jesus revealed time after time. The best thing you can do is the first thing in the morning, get up and read scripture and hear the voice of Jesus speaking. I recommend the McShane reading calendar. You read through the Old Testament and Psalms once a year, and uh, the New Testament and Psalms twice a year, and the Old Testament once a year. And I've been doing this for years, and I want to tell you, I have many questions when I come to the Bible, but every year I have more questions answered as I'm reading through it about Jesus, and more questions come as a result of my reading. But overall, the biggest impact is seeing Jesus. 
seeing him. First of all, God's word. Secondly, trusting in Jesus by faith. I love how it says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, though you've not seen him, you believe in him and are filled with inexpressible joy. By trusting in him, we see him more clearly. And then third, be aware of the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. You uh, probably have are not surprised by the fact that many people came and saw Jesus and did not believe. That's because it's only by the power of the Holy Spirit drawing us that we can even see Jesus. We need the presence and power of the Spirit. It's all of Him. And what happens after we see Him? Well, what happens to Andrew? Verses 40 to 42 tell us that Andrew immediately after talking to Jesus, thinks, I've got to find my brother, Simon. And he finds Simon, and he says, come, you've got to come. I think we found the Messiah, which is Hebrew, and he translates it Christ, which is the Greek word, means anointed one, anointed one. It's the word used of kings, one who leads and teaches and saves, especially the king and savior of the greater David of 2 Samuel chapter 7. I think we found the Messiah. Simon, you've got to come. And so he brings Simon to Jesus. And Jesus looks at him and says, you're not Simon. You're Cephas, Peter, the rock. I was having my devotions yesterday, and it was on the denials of Peter. A little servant girl says, oh, you were with Jesus. Oh, no, I wasn't. And I think, how could Jesus say to this weak, fumbling man, you're going to be a rock, you're going to be foundational to the church? It's because Jesus saw what Peter would become. He looks at you and me, and he sees what we will become. He has a vision for us as his witness. Jesus knows Peter will be the rock, how encouraging it is. I love how Don Carson said it, Andrew became the first in a long line of successors who have discovered that the most common and effective Christian testimony is the private witness of friend to friend and brother to brother. John said, Andrew, the lamb. He witnessed to Andrew. Andrew went, he saw Jesus, he brings Peter. It's the pattern of the scripture. Come and see and bring others with you. But what about skeptics? What about those who have all these intellectual hang-ups that get in the way of their faith? Well, that brings us to the next section, verses 43 to 51. Secondly, not only seekers are invited to come and see, but skeptics are invited to come and see. Notice in verse 43 that Jesus, in this case, doesn't wait for Philip to come to him. He initiates the conversation with Philip. The next day, he approaches Philip, and he says to him, follow me. Again, follow me. We could take literally, okay, I'm going to follow you, but 
according to John, follow me becomes a word for devoted to the master. And Philip, for whatever reason, maybe hearing from Andrew and Peter, because he was from the same town, immediately follows Jesus. And then he decides he needs to invite Nathaniel to come and see. And I love how uh, John Calvin, uh, look, I, I don't know if any of you read these old guys, but you know, sometimes they have really good insight. And he says, you know, really, Philip was not a great witness because he says, we have found uh, Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. He said he made two mistakes. First of all, he led Nathaniel to believe that Jesus was born in Nazareth, and he wasn't. He was born in Bethlehem, where the Messiah was born. And secondly, he was not the son of Joseph. He was the stepson of Joseph. God was Jesus' father. But despite this inadequate witness, Philip got it right. He said, you got to come and see this, this person of whom all the uh, Moses and the whole Old Testament points to him. You've got to come and see him. He got that right. And he got it right. Come and see. Come and see. You're skeptical? Because, of course, uh, Nathaniel, what good could come out of Nazareth? Uh, Nathaniel was from Cana, we know. It was a neighboring town. This little tiny town of Nazareth, probably about 2,000 in Jesus' day, what good does it have for us? He was skeptical. But Philip didn't give up on him. He didn't condemn him. He didn't say, eh, you're so skeptical. He said, eh, come and see. Come and personally experience this man. I know a man who was very skeptical about Christianity, despite his wife's love for Jesus. And she prayed for him for years. And he would not budge. And then one day, a friend of his said, hey, we're starting a parking lot ministry in our church. Love to have you join us. He thought, oh, okay, that's something I could do, stand out there with a yellow jacket and direct people. And so he did. He joined this group, guys, that worked in the parking lot ministry. You know, I think a lot of men have trouble figuring out where they fit in the church. And the parking lot ministry drew his attention, and he began to work. And every morning, those guys would get together on Sunday mornings, and they would pray together, and they'd study a little scripture, and then they'd go out and serve. And he came to know Christ through that parking lot ministry. Recently, he passed away. And I talked to his wife, and she said, Randy, he proclaimed Jesus before he died. And I thought, somebody invited him. Come and see. And once you've seen, bring someone with you. My friend and my pastor, Brandon Levering of Stonebridge Church, said, when we encounter skeptics, it's always helpful to do our best to answer the hard questions that they have. But the main thing is to help them meet Jesus 
Invite them to come and see him for themselves. You know, Nathaniel could have walked away. He could have said, nah, I don't believe it. But he didn't. He came to Jesus. And Jesus saw him coming. And what did Jesus say when he saw him? He said, huh. Behold an Israelite in whom there is indeed no deceit. Verse 45. And it's interesting to see Nathaniel's response. How do you know me? Have you ever had that happen? Somebody walks up and, and they, they think they know you and they don't. And you say, do we know each other? And I was talking to Brent this morning. He said he has a twin named Kent. And he said so often somebody will come up, they think they know him, and he's never met him. You know, and he goes, do I know you? Um, that's what happened here. Nathaniel's saying, how do you know me? And, and by the way, Jesus said, a, a, a true Israelite in whom there is no deceit. We get a hint here that Jesus is contrasting Nathaniel, who is an honest man, with Jacob, Genesis 28, the deceiver, deceitful man. How do you know me? Jesus says, oh, I saw you underneath the fig tree. Now, we don't know what Nathaniel was doing under the fig tree. We don't know where Jesus was. He may have been 10 miles away. We don't know. all the It's kind of a mystery to us. But whatever it was that Jesus saw in Nathaniel, Nathaniel immediately declared his faith in Jesus because of what he said. And what does he say? You are the Son of God, the King of Israel. I don't know if you've noticed, but throughout this passage, there are many titles. There's eight titles for Jesus. And the Son of God kind of combines them all. Jesus is the Lamb of God, verse 36. The Rabbi of verse 38. He is the Messiah, the Anointed One, verse 41. He's the one of whom Moses and the prophets wrote, verse 45. He's Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph, proving his, his, his historical reality. He's the Son of God, verse 49. He's the King of Israel, verse 49. The Son of Man, verse 51. All that summarized in this Son of God terminology. Nathaniel saw it. He immediately believed and he declared his allegiance to Jesus. Come and see. And having seen who Jesus is, bring someone with you. That's what Nathaniel Philip did. It's interesting that Jesus then says to Nathaniel, because Nathaniel says, wow, you know, that, that's a miracle that you knew me. And Jesus basically says to him at the end here, you haven't seen anything yet. You haven't seen anything yet. And, we, and just to give you a preview, next Sunday we'll see in John chapter 2, Jesus changes water into wine. He's about ready to see that. But there's something more here, because in verse 51, Jesus alludes to angels ascending and descending upon the ladder, which is the story of Jacob in the Old Testament, who goes to Bethel, the house of God, is what he calls it, and has this dream, this vision of angels going up and down in a stairway to heaven. And Jesus is specifically saying 
you will see angels ascending and descending. In other words, you will not only see me change water into wine, but you will see the greatest of all miracles, the Son of God on a cross, dying for sins, rising again, and exalted to the highest place in heaven. Jesus is the stairway. Jesus is our mediator. There's one God and one mediator between God and man. It's the man Christ Jesus. That's what Nathaniel will see. This is amazing truth. Come and see. Are you a seeker or a skeptic this morning? Will you come and see Jesus? And having seen him, will you repent of your sins? Own up to them. Make a 180 degree transfer of dependence upon the old things, the old idols, the old things you loved, and transfer your loyalty and allegiance to Jesus alone. That's what repentance is. Trust in him. Will you discover the amazing gift of forgiveness That Jesus not only forgives our sins, but deals with the guilt that we bear and the shame that we feel and places within us a joy that's not based upon circumstances, a joy that can even cause someone to praise God despite the most difficult of days. Jesus Christ makes your life better. He has a lifting effect. Now, I'm not saying he makes your life easier. In many ways, it's not easy to be a Christian. But what a great thing to know the God of the universe. Come and see and bring others with you. One of the reasons the church is so weak today is we have lost the impact of one-on-one discipling. Look around, my friends. There are lots of seats here. We came today to see Jesus. Why not bring someone with us? Here I was listening to my granddaughter. She said, Grandpa, let me tell you how it works. I said, okay kind of knelt down to listen to her more colorful. She said, here's what it is. She said, I tell somebody about Jesus, and then they tell someone about Jesus, and pretty soon there's a whole bunch of people that love Jesus. And I thought, if a five-year-old can understand it, then a fellow my age ought to get it. My brothers and sisters in Christ, Jesus is too good to keep to ourselves. So seek him. Come and see him. Abide in him. Daily time, through faith, through the power of the Spirit. And then tell someone. In fact, here's an assignment for you. Write down three names in your Bible or on a piece of paper and begin to pray for these three names of people you know that do not yet know Jesus. Pray, first of all, 
for an opportunity to talk with them, at least align yourself with Jesus in some way with them, and secondly, pray for the courage to do it. Because the church is weak, we're afraid, we're distracted. We make it more complicated than it is. We're weak in evangelism and one-on-one discipleship. But Jesus said, it's not that hard. I was in the Navigators for many years. The president of the Navigators when I was then was Lawrence Sandy. And he said it this way. Witnessing is just taking a good look at the Lord Jesus Christ and telling others what you've seen. Will you do that this week? Wouldn't it be great to come back next Sunday and say, who'd you talk to this week? And why not invite someone to come and see Jesus? Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much that you are the word become flesh All these titles reflect your name. Forgive us, Lord, for our fear, for our distraction. Forgive us when skeptical questions get in the way. Thank you, you don't condemn us. You didn't condemn Nathaniel for his skepticism. You don't condemn us. You welcome us to come and see. Help us to come and see. And having seen to abide and abiding, bring others along with us. Father, I pray, you, this church is called Redeemer, Fight for Joy. Our city, our region needs a Redeemer. Oh God, would you come in the power of your Holy Spirit and move us to see your glory and then move us into courageous faith to tell others. And we would give you the praise and the glory for what you are about to do in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to divide up for a few minutes to pray. And if you're not comfortable praying, please stay and be a part of a group because you don't have to pray out loud. But let me encourage you. Somebody told me the best advice I'd ever heard. Prayer is just simply baby talk to God. He's not impressed with big theological terms. We can just tell God the secrets of our hearts. He already knows them, and we can pray. And so uh, I would invite you to stay and pray. We're going to pray through the titles in this chapter and uh, just give him praise and thanksgiving for who he is. And then secondly, I'd like you to come and think about this whole idea of uh, sharing the gospel with others as a follower of Jesus Uh, remaining in him and sharing with others what we've seen of him. So let's divide into groups, and then in a few moments we'll come back together and celebrate the Lord's Supper.